Our scripture today is from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Jesus spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. Then he rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit from the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the landowner sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head and treated him disgracefully. He sent another one, that one they killed. The landlord sent many other servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. He sent him last, thinking, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, this is the heir, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They grabbed him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. They wanted to arrest Jesus because they knew he had told the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Wow, that's loud. As Bruce said, uh, my name is Todd Bradley, and I just want to offer a disclaimer on the front end. I'm not clergy. I'm not staff here. I'm a member of Parkway Heights. And um, this has come to be my favorite week of the year, annual conference week, because it's worked out the last several years. I've been asked to, uh, to fill in and, and preach for the, during this week, the week of annual conference. And, and Bruce called me a few weeks ago, and he said, Todd, I, I have a favor to ask of you. So he said, would you preach that week of, of annual conference? And I said... Bruce, I'd be glad to, but, but I thought y'all were going to, you know, the conference ends on Saturday and y'all be back. He said, yeah, but it would just be a real big burden to, to have to do sermon prep while we're at conference, and you'd be doing me a huge favor. And, uh, and I let him think that I was doing him a favor, but I want to share with you, Bruce did me an awful favor. He did, because, because every time I get asked to preach here, uh, what a blessing. And, and I just pray that somehow... Uh, each of you will get a blessing out of it as well. Um, so as we turn to the Word, let's open with a prayer. Gracious God, thank you for, uh, for meeting us here today. Father, we just ask that you would open the ears of our hearts, Father, that we would hear your voice. Father, and we would respond accordingly and be brought in a much closer walk with you and your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As Bruce said that um, this... This morning begins a uh, nine-week series on the parables of Jesus. And, uh, and what a joy it is to talk about the parables of Jesus, because Jesus taught in parables. And I just want to begin by just offering just a little background on what a parable is. I asked my Sunday school class last week, I said, said, said help me out. Um, what is a parable? In your own words. And they did a great job. This is what they came up with. So a parable is a short allegorical story designed to illustrate or teach some truth, religious principle, or moral lesson. 
Well, they did a great job because that was almost verbatim out of the dictionary. Um, and I will add to that, a parable can also be a statement or a comment that conveys a meaning indirectly by use of comparison. Simple statements like Jesus says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is like. That's, that's a parable. So why does Jesus teach in parables? Jesus spoke in a language that his audience would understand. Keep in mind that most of the parables that Jesus spoke were in Galilee. And these people were not uh, terribly educated. They were farmers, fishermen. And Jesus spoke in a language they understood. You'll hear most of the parables that Jesus tells have an agricultural background. The people understood that language. Another reason Jesus spoke in stories is because people remember stories. We like to hear stories and we remember them. As a teenager, I got hooked on reading Louis Grizzard. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Louis Grizzard or not. But after 40 years, I can still remember the stories that he told because that's just the power that stories have. We remember them and they stick to us. Because another thing, I won't go into great deal. There's a misunderstanding, I think, that parables are intended to conceal truth. That's not the case. Jesus reveals truth in, in, in his parables. Um, part of it deals with the fact that, um, that Jesus says, and he quotes from Isaiah. He says, in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. Jesus, just like Isaiah, is speaking to a special class of people, a people that think they already have the truth. Therefore, they don't need to hear his truth. And I wish I could remember who told me this, but it stuck with me. Um, great, great observation. It says, the greatest obstacle to truth is the perception that you already possess it. And that's the, that's the people that Jesus speaks to. that says, when you're hearing but not understanding, you're seeing but not perceiving. Nowhere in Scripture can you find where someone comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, explain to me what you meant by this parable, and he turns them away. Never. Jesus wants us to understand. And if we have trouble understanding, all we've got to do is ask. I believe that. So Jesus wants us to understand the parables. And again, depending on, on how, who's doing the counting and how they define a parable, there's somewhere between 34 and 46 parables of Jesus in the New Testament. Question would be, Todd, why did you pick the parable of the vineyard today? If you had 40, 34 to 46 to pick from, why is that? Well, it's a good question. First thing, this parable is one of only a handful that appears in all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it must have some theological significance for the three synoptic gospel writers to include it. Secondly, is it uses Old Testament imagery. And I love the Old Testament. And, and this parable captures a lot of the imagery from the Old Testament. And Mark maintains more of the elements of the Old Testament. So, so that's why I chose um, Mark's version of it. And finally, this parable falls into a special class of parables called judicial parables. And a judicial parable is a story about the listener told with the intent of the listener being convicted. I'll give you an example of one of those from the Old Testament. If you recall 2 Samuel, King David, he stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And in order to hide his sin, he had Uriah killed. Well, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. Now, if you're Nathan and you have to go confront the king about his misdeeds, that's pretty, pretty, pretty scary. 
So Nathan approaches him with a judicial parable. And he tells him the story of two men that live in a town, one rich, one poor. Rich man has hundreds of sheep and cattle. The poor man has one little ewe lamb. But he loved it like a child. It lived in the house with him. Well, the rich man has a visitor come, and instead of slaughtering his own sheep for a feast for the visitor, he goes and steals the poor man's sole lamb, slaughters him to feed his guest. And when David hears Nathan tell the story, he's appalled. And he said, the, the punishment fitting this crime is death. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. You're the man. And David was convicted. And he, and he bowed down and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And he repented. And that's the purpose of the judicial parable, so that the listener will see themselves and be convicted. So the story that we looked at today that Melissa read for us tells the story of a man who planted a vineyard. And Jesus gives some interesting details about the vineyard. Says, the man built a wall or a hedge around it. He built a tower. And again, these devices are intended uh, for protection of his investment. Jesus also tells us that he dug a wine press. Before that vineyard ever produced a single piece of fruit, the man dug a wine press. He had an expectation that the, his labors would return a profit. So he dug the wine press in advance. And then Jesus says that the man goes away. And he leaves the operation of his vineyard to tenant farmers. Well, archaeologists in the Galilean area have found papyrus that describe this tenant farmer relationship. Um, so the people, the audience would have understood what that looked like that, that the landowner was to provide land and the necessary capital for the operation, the tenants would provide the labor. And when the crop came in, they would split the profits between the two groups. People understood that. But Jesus goes on to tell the story that when the landowner sent his emissaries to collect on his share, the tenants refused to share. They beat and or killed the representatives that the landowner sent. Now, Jesus doesn't tell exactly how many people he sent, but he says that when the landowner ran out of options, he says, the only thing that I have left to do is to send my son. Certainly, they will respect my son. Well, the tenants had a different idea. They said, if we kill the son, then we'll be the sole heirs of the vineyard. Again, the story is a judicial parable. It's told to convict the audience. So I just want to share with you what the audience would have heard. Keep in mind, it's a Jewish audience. And they would have been very familiar with the Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel, the, the vine is a symbol of Israel. Share with you Psalm 80. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root, and it filled the land. Again, speaking of Israel, and the same imagery is used by, by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, so that Israel knew that it was God's vine that was planted with the purpose of, uh, of producing fruit. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us that during the time of Jesus, at the temple... Both the entrance to the temple 
And over the gates of the temple area was a golden vine. And on that hung golden grapes. Again, it was a symbol that Israel was the Lord's vine. Because the audience would have also been familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah. And i just share with you a little bit of Isaiah 5 and listen to the similarities in what Jesus said to his group. I will sing a song for the one I love, a song about my vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out the wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, and he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Again, the judicial parable intended to convict In Isaiah's prophecy, the Lord says, Israel is my vine that I planted, but it didn't produce the fruit that I wanted. What I wanted it to produce was justice and righteousness, but what it produced was bloodshed and cries of distress. So the Lord says, what shall I do? I'll destroy it. Well, history tells us that in 722 B.C., Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. In 586 B.C., Judea and Jerusalem were were destroyed by the Babylonians. You see, when Israel didn't produce the fruit that God intended, he allowed it to be destroyed. Now we fast forward seven or eight centuries to the time of Jesus. When Jesus tells this parable of the vineyard, his audience would have been well aware of what Jesus was saying to them. They would have understood that the vine or the vineyard was God's people or God's kingdom. And he would have understood that the landowner was God himself. And they would have understood that the wall and the watchtower were the blessings that God had provided. But see, Mark, uh, Jesus diverges just a little bit from the Isaiah story. In the Isaiah story, the problem with the vineyard was it produced bad fruit. In the story that Jesus tells, there's no indication that the fruit was bad. It's just the tenants wouldn't share with the landowner. So you see, Jesus' problem is not with the people. It's with the leadership. They wouldn't turn over what was rightfully God's. But again, this is the, throughout the New Testament, this is the problem that Jesus had with the leadership, this hypocrisy that, that they didn't serve in leadership to praise God. They served in leadership to receive the praise of men. They didn't seek the righteousness of God, but instead they basked in their own self-righteousness. Said another way, Their focus was on themselves and not on pleasing God. And so that's the problem that Jesus had. And that's where he tells this parable. So what is the landowner to do? Jesus says the landowner's only option is to bring in new tenants. I'm going to bring in tenants who will share, who will give give the landowner what is due to him. 
Did the people get it? They got it. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 12 of of Mark um, that, that Melissa read. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they got it. Jesus pricked at their consciousness because he knew and he told them he knew that they were planning to kill him. They were conspiring a way to do that. But instead of responding as David did and falling down and saying, Lord, I have sinned against you, they chose to do something differently. They chose to conspire to kill the Son of God. The Messiah that they had been waiting for is standing there in front of him and they have conspired to kill him. Well, Scripture tells us that they did just that. Fulfilling the prophecy of the parable that the tenants killed the son. Of course, also we know from history that the, um, the Jewish leadership was significantly changed in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And you might even say that, that God transferred the leadership from Jewish leadership to church leadership of his people. You might say that. And it would be easy to say that if this parable is strictly a prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus and the destruction of, of Jerusalem, then it has no value other than the benefit, no benefit for us other than the historical value. But I don't see it that way. I think the passage still speaks to us today and still offers words of hope, but also words of warning for you and for me. Earlier this year, um, I had the opportunity to go on a dental and medical mission trip to Nepal. And I had been before, but what was really special about this one, first I had an opportunity to go with my brother. And we had a great time and, and had some good bonding time together. And it's something that we will always have that we can share together. Another interesting thing about this is I had been before, but this trip took us to a much more remote area of the country than I had ever seen. And it opened my eyes to the way some people in the world live. And and I'll share with you just a few statistics. This actually came out of an in-flight magazine um, of uh, of Buddha Air. It's a domestic carrier in Nepal. And believe it or not, I got on a plane called Buddha Air, but um, (laughs) prayed all the way through that one. Um, But here's what the magazine says, just sort of about life in Nepal. The infant mortality rate is about five or six times what it is in our country. 4% of the children will die before age five. That's four out of every 100 children will die before age five. And half of these child deaths are attributed to malnutrition. 25% of the population lives on less than a dollar a day. Half the population does not have access to piped water. And 75% of the houses do not have sewage facilities things we take for granted is a physical challenge for most people of the world. But you know, in spite of the physical challenges, people there have spiritual challenges as well. And I think this is even more significant. 3% of the population of Nepal is Christian. And it is illegal in Nepal to openly evangelize for any religion. What are the chances that the average citizen of Nepal will ever hear the good news? I mean, how blessed are are we that we have access to the good news, both to receive and to share? 
how will these people ever hear? Again, to, to me, it's, um, it's much more of a spiritual issue as much as it is physical. Since I've been back and I've had the opportunity to share with friends, friends had questions and, and want to know, you know, what, tell me about your trip, what's life like there? And I, and I sort of outline, you know, what, what I've just told you. And the question that I got from multiple people was, why do you think that is? Why does God bless us more than other people? And I guess a corollary to that question might be, does God love some more than others? I don't think that's true. But I've had plenty of time to think on that question. Again, it came up multiple times. And I don't have all the answers. But I'll share with you what I do know. I know from Scripture, in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abraham. At the time, he's known as Abram, but we know him as Abraham. And the Lord says he chose him to bless him. He doesn't say why. But with that blessing comes responsibility. The Lord tells Abraham that he will bless him with the expectation that Abraham will bless others and his descendants will bless others. So my takeaway from that is, is I don't have all the answers to, to why God chooses to bless who he does, but I do know that when he offers blessing, he has the expectation that it'll be shared, that it'll produce fruit. So let's sort of apply that to the, um, to the parable we looked at. If we consider the vineyard to be the follower of, of Christ, the church, you and me, the hedge and the watchtower are symbols of God's blessing, and the wine press reminds us that God has an expectation that his investment will yield a return, that we'll, we'll share those blessings, that we'll produce fruit. And again, producing fruit looks like a lot of different things in a lot of different circumstances. But if you've been here at Parkway Heights, for any length of time, you know the ways that fruit is produced here. Providing ministry to the homeless at the field house. Working with the kids over here at Woodley. Taking them from a D to a B school. Working with the kids at Hattiesburg High. Serving at Edwards Street. The trip to Honduras. Um, 20-something years worth of, of, of trips to, uh, to Honduras to serve those people. The Meals on Wheels, homebound for the community. And this is just to name a few ways that Parkway Heights is producing fruit. And it's not the church that's doing it. It's doing it because the individuals, because you are answering the call to say, God, I'm going to share the blessings you've given me with others. Again, producing fruit is simply sharing the blessings, both physically and spiritually, that the Lord has provided. Well, what about the other side of the parable? I said the parable offers a warning. What about churches that don't produce fruit? If the parable says something to the church today, then what does it say about churches that stop producing fruit? Ultimately, a church that doesn't produce fruit will die. A survey by the Southern Baptist Convention said that 4,000 churches in the United States will die each year. And there's all kind of books and articles written on what's the cause of it, the five reasons, the 10 reasons, the 15 reasons, but there's a common element that runs through every one of them. And that's at some point, the focus of the church turns from outward to inward. They begin to worry about themselves. And that's why churches die. Turning back to scripture in John's gospel, chapter 13 tells the story of the Last Supper. 
in the upper room. Chapter 18 of John's Gospel tells the story of the arrest of Jesus. And I say that to say that in between there, chapters 14 and 17 are Jesus' closing remarks to the disciples. The events of chapter 13 take place in Jerusalem in the upper room. The events of 18 take place in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. The farewell discourse in between, we don't know where that took place. Was it, in, was it in the upper room? Was it in the garden? One theory says that it took place along the way. A route that might well have taken them past the temple. And I don't have any historical um, facts to lean on, but I have an image in my mind of Jesus saying these words at the moment that they're standing outside the temple where the entranceway had that golden vine that I talked about with the golden grapes hanging with a symbol that Israel was, was God's vine. And this is what Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that he will be even more fruitful. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like the parable, the words of hope, abide in me and be fruitful. In the words of warning, apart from me, you can do nothing. You will bear no fruit and you'll be cut off. Friends, Jesus has given us a blueprint of what, a, what it means and what it takes to be fruitful, to be productive. We need to make him the focus of every activity that we take on, both individually and as a church. And as a church, there's a lot of things out there in the world that can distract us. We won't go into a lot of detail. Bruce spoke of, of distractions a few weeks ago. And I'm not weighing in on, on, on what's happening because there's a lot of things there I can't control. There's a lot of things you can't control of what goes on. But what we can control, both individually and corporately, is where we focus our attention. We can keep our eyes on Christ and abide in Him and we'll continue to produce fruit. What does that look like at Parkway Heights? How do we maintain that? I'll just share with you these, these ideas. That we need to acknowledge that Christ is the head of this congregation. As much as I, I love our staff, Bruce, Susan, David, Christ is the head of this congregation. We're to make sure that our teaching and our preaching is biblical-based. You guys do a great job individually. We need to be active listeners. We don't need to wait till Sunday to hear the word of God. We need to do that on our own. And we need to remember that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the only means to salvation. We don't receive salvation by works. It's got nothing to do with producing fruit. Producing fruit is the simple byproduct of abiding in Christ. And the fruit will flow out of that. We've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And in doing that, we will fulfill the Great Commission.
of making disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Can we pray? Gracious God, we thank you for the words of Jesus. Father, we ask that, um, that they would take hold. Father, that you would give us the strength, the faith, and the courage to always abide in him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.